Purple Insider presented by Liquid Death. Go to liquiddeath.com slash insider and learn about the Tall Boy can, which actually has water. Find out where you can get it near you at liquiddeath.com slash insider. to another episode of Purple Insider. Matthew Collar here and joining me. And since we're in the bye week, I wanted to do a very special episode in the return of the Purple Insider book club. It is Tyler Dunn, whose book has just come out, The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football. And Tyler, also, of course, of Go Long TD, as you have been on the show numerous times and written some great and in-depth features about the Minnesota Vikings. Um, But Tyler, it's almost like someone asked me, what would you like a book about? And I would say tight ends and you've done it. What's going on, man? <laughs> oh my God. Well, it's a pleasure to be here then. It's uh, you know, it's a position that speaks to our inner football soul. I feel like we're kind of brothers from another mother, Matt, when it comes to loving the sport for the way the football gods intended. So hell yeah. I had to throw myself into this project, this concept and had no idea what to expect. Like, how many of these guys even want to talk to some balded, bearded dude from Western New York about their life in the tight end position? And they they blew me away with their time, the generosity, their access. Um, it was a labor of love in every sense of the cliche from Dicka to Kittle. Well, you know, what was interesting to me in reading it is that I kind of thought that you were going to have these guys sort of like um, – analyze football, right? Like analyze the tight end position. And what it turned into much more is the incredible stories of these guys in football, which, which I, I love. And I want a lot more. Um, I, I don't necessarily need old tight ends saying, yeah, it's about blocking the the edge or whatever. Um, but you really got these guys to open up about their life stories. And I wanted to talk about a few that I really loved um, because I just think they're great football stories and that everyone in our audience will enjoy them. The The Jackie Smith story is really incredible. Uh, the, the fact that you were able to get him to talk about the drop in, in the Super Bowl uh, was shocking. I've never read that before. And I think that you said he had not talked about it and he had held on to it for the longest time. And, and then was you got him to open up after a few beers. And I think that he's one of the most like sort of interesting figures in the NFL, such a great player for so long. It was at the very tail end of his career. And then you had this chance to sit down. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk more about that conversation with him. I'm so glad you brought up Jackie Smith. I, I don't want him to get lost amidst like all these other big time names, right? Grant Kittle, Dick, uh, Mackie, Winslow. He had as much to do, you know, when you do talk about the schematic, you know, aspect of the position as, as any tight end. I mean, he, he stretched the field. He ran routes down the field. At one point when we're hanging out at uh, Cyberg's, I think was the restaurant in St. Louis, he pops up out of his stool at you know 82 and is pretending to run routes and explaining how he was able to get open. There's all that stuff. And we, we, we got into his rise because it is nuts. I mean, he grew up in nowhere, Louisiana, as a track star that had nothing to do with football, barely played. And the only way reason he played football in college was because the track coach told him, I'll give you a scholarship if you also play football. <laughs> so it was just kind of a bonus to get him there. He wasn't going to be able to pay his way uh, to a, to a college. So yeah, all that stuff is worth folks' time. And I think Jackie Smith deserves his due when it comes to his significance, to the tight end position, but really that I think we had titled that chapter you know, a mindset because he gave the position a mentality to overcome adversity that we did see in the Dallas Clarks, you know, when his mom dies in his arms later in life, Jimmy Graham, when he's fighting for his life day to day in a group home and he thinks he's going to die, you know, as basically an orphan, Jackie Smith, what he went through after that Super Bowl drop, it, it was life shattering in just about every way. I mean, this is one of the the nicest, most gentle, kind souls you'll ever meet in your life. I felt like I was hanging out with my own grandfather 
over a couple beers. I mean, the similarities between Jackie Smith and Hugh Dunn, it kind of blew my mind. I mean, just two, two of the best men on the face of the earth. And you could see how much that, that moment in time when he dropped that pass in the Super Bowl against the Pittsburgh Steelers at the tail end of his career, right? He already has a Hall of Fame-bound career. Tom Landry calls. He goes there. He's a blocking tight end at that point. He's not catching anything. Um, catches a touchdown in a playoff game that's huge to get them to the Super Bowl. And then wide open, drops it. Um, there's a lot that goes into that play where Jackie Smith does not deserve a for nearly as much scoring as he got. You know, Roger Staubach has been open on it, on the way he threw the ball. Everybody was shocked he was so wide open. The play call itself shouldn't have been called about nine, ten yards out. It's a, it was a goal line play, so that threw off the dimensions of the route. Uh, but it, it shook his life in so many ways. And, and it took Jackie Smith decades to get over it. He admitted. And it wasn't something, to your point, that I just – jumped right into it's not like we sat down and said hey let's talk about the worst moment of your life um it kind of had to build up to that moment build up that trust and he, he eventually got to that point where he was ready to talk about that play that drop and what it did to him it affected his relationships his wife his kid his kids especially he became distant in a lot of ways and it wasn't until really 2020 two years ago that jackie smith looked himself in the mirror and said you son of a like get it together get it together. And now he just can't stop talking about his kids. The relationships are great. And he is in a good, good place um, spiritually. And I, I think that, that he, he gave the position, the mindset that it really needed long-term. Yeah. So what's fascinating about that play also is it, it also the iconic calls on television and radio that stuck with people. It was third down, not fourth down, by the way. They could have gone for it. They settled for a field goal, but they could have gone for it. Like in today's game, they put the team probably just goes for it and does not settle for a field goal. But that moment became so iconic that ESPN ranked it like 24th out of their top 100 greatest Super Bowl moments. So this really lived with him. It was against Pittsburgh, Super Bowl 13, and it, it stuck with him forever. And I, I have thought about that a number of times when watching NFL films documentaries about uh, just about the Super Bowls and that play and everything else. And I love how you describe like his emotions afterward that were captured on TV also made it stick out. It wasn't like it yeah. kind of just hit the ground and whatever. Like it was so clear how upset he was with himself that all those things kind of converged, even though like many plays in history, there's so many other parts of that that went into it. Also, they lost 35 to 31, like feel free to stop somebody on the other side. Right. Or, or like I said, go for it on fourth down. You didn't have to kick a field goal, but it is amazing to me. And I know that this is true for Gary Anderson with the Vikings, how this lives with people like Gary Anderson um, is, has pretty much uh, just not done any real media at all um, after what happened with him. And that was in 1998 and he continued to kick, but did not talk about it uh, really at all. Scott Norwood came back to Buffalo and did an event. And I think I was there cause I think it was like 2003. 13 or 14 when Scott Nor and, and there was almost nothing from him until the documentary that was done. So it's, it's amazing to me how these guys, especially the Super Bowl moments that they live with them forever. And I think that you end up feeling very empathetic toward Jackie Smith because he's a hall of famer. He had one of the greatest careers and was one of the most influential people at that position, but that ends up what he en ends up being known for. It's unfair, you know, and that, that's to put it, lightly I, I don't even know the word for it it's it's not right it's 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 criminal I mean Jackie Smith his what he did for the game for the position for the city of St. Louis I mean he might be the the best football player to ever come through the city of St. Louis you know especially up until Kurt Warner right and um his own team, you know, the Arizona Cardinals now, for whatever reason, like they, they don't even put his name in the ring of honor because he was feuding like with the owner on his way out decades ago. So, I mean, that's a whole other element to this all that you feel bad for Jackie Smith. And it's just not right. I mean, for a, a second, two seconds of time to define who you are in, in, in the eyes of many, it's, I can't imagine, you know, being defined by something that happens in that blink of an eye and on all of our lives. And I think that's a big point of the book. It's like th these dudes that play the tight end position, it is a profession unlike any in America. I mean, you're bashing into other people. 
you're trying to beat the hell out of other people, practice in, practice out, game in, game out. Then you're in a cold tub talking about it. It's it's weird. It's different. It's strange. And th- this is the player kind of keeping that essence alive. And beyond the physical, it's the, the mental. And I think that Jackie Smith mentally to fight through what he did and have it affect him where his relationships did become strained, where he did become distant. And he genuinely is torn up by it. I mean, he shed tears when we're hanging out multiple times. He's he's pulling out, you know, a, a quote that he keeps in his front pocket that is that spoke to him, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, yeah, it's 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 profound and it makes you feel bad. But I think the fact that he got through it says a lot about who Jackie Smith is and the way he does get through it. I want everybody to read the book. Obviously we got a a ton more in there. He he works out every day. I mean, we talk a lot about players who are struggling, you know, cognitively, physically later in life for good reason. I mean, Ben Coates being one who doesn't even drive. It's hard enough for him to even walk around his own house. Jackie Smith is throwing around dumbbells and working out at 82, which is remarkable. So he has found these little ways to kind of like move on and in his own mind, know who he is, the person he is, the player he was. And I think working out, strengthening those relationships with his kids helps him accomplish that. Yeah. I wanted to bring that one up first because it just really jumped off the page to me. And and I think it really um, sort of represents what you tried to do in this book was to really capture the football journeys of a lot of tight ends. And I did want to ask like why you wanted to write about tight ends. I want to start off just with the thing that was most recently in my mind, which was the Jackie Smith thing. But uh, because I think it is such a fascinating position. I was at the combine and I was in a who knows where, like as, as happens at the combine, you're just in some random hotel bar or something. And I was talking to a guy who was uh, like a, you know, a guy trying to get drafted and he's a tight end. So of course he's like six foot seven and 230 pounds as they all are these days. And we were having this conversation about why tight end is the most difficult position and why it's so fascinating and why it takes really a special person because you have to be willing to do all the blocking and, and run routes and make plays, but also be able to understand all of those things. And I think what really yeah. comes across in the book is how intelligent a lot of these players are. And then there's one I want to talk to you about after this, but I wonder, like, was that one of the reasons why this was so captivating to you as a subject? That was something that surprised me, honestly, you know, long story short, what made me dive headfirst into the blood and guts and learning about the tight end position and, and its significance to the game was I'm an old soul. I love old school football like we hit on. Like, I just I, – I feel like this is the dude that's keeping it alive. What I didn't expect is how smart these guys are. And next to the quarterback, nobody on an offense needs to know more than the tight end. I mean, you need to know what the linemen are doing and how to block power, how to block zone plays in the running game. You need to know everything a wide receiver does, how to run routes, how to read coverages. You might even be in the backfield protecting the quarterback. It is there. I'll put it this way. It's no coincidence that so many tight ends are broadcasters today. Greg Olson might be the best color man in the game. We, we talked about you know, how he saw the game. Uh, Tony Gonzalez has been a broadcaster for a long, long time. Gosh, who, I mean, Mike Dicka, obviously I mean, Mike Dicka was iconic. So, you just have to know everything. I mean, that's part of it. But even beyond that, I think that um, it's the personality too. I think that's a big reason that they're they're broadcasters as well. That Dallas Clark kind of put it best. Like you know, the linemen they're they're pissed off at us because we're stepping on their toes, and the receivers are pissed off at us because we're taking targets away from them. We kind of feel like this lost you know redheaded stepchild. Like who even wants me around? And maybe maybe it creates this inferiority complex. They're underpaid. I mean, they do everything, yet they're not paid much at all. I mean, next to specialists and fullbacks, nobody makes less. So I think that kind of feeds a personality, a chip on the shoulder, a hunger. You add it all up, and you have a creature unlike anything in sports. Yeah, and, and that's why I really love the the concept um, because obviously it's been our experience here with somebody like Kyle Rudolph, uh, a, a guy who could easily be a broadcaster at the end of his career, um, very, very intelligent player. Um, but I, I think that um, that's something that has to be pervasive among all of these guys or you're just not going to make it because the position is so complicated. So I want to talk right. in that in that vein about Ozzie Newsom 
who I've always found to be a super fascinating character because what you really tie together well with Ozzie Newsom is his playing career and the type of person and player he was, which is just an incredible all-time great player with what he did after in the front office of the Baltimore Ravens and of course the Cleveland Browns before that, but really being integral in building the Baltimore Ravens. And it, he just seems like such a, such a quiet and humble person. But when you look at how they built those Baltimore Ravens teams that ended up winning the Super Bowl uh, in 2000, I mean, it, it's 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 really a lot of great decisions and a lot of great process that, you know, you're hiring Kwesi Adafo Mensas to bring in, uh, you know, and, and people who are Harvard educated or Princeton educated or whatever to try to put in the right processes and everything else. And, and Ozzie Newsom was kind of doing some of this stuff intuitively, which I think is really, really fascinating. Intuitively is the perfect word, too, because that's what he was born into. He was born into chaos in the segregated South, right? I mean, all of the iconic things that we learned about in history class in middle school, Ozzie Newsom was smack dab born in the middle of all this going on. I mean, he lived it on, his, on, on a youth baseball team, you know, his team had was, was forced to stay somewhere else when they're traveling because people on the compound at the complex where they were staying did, didn't like the fact there was African-Americans there. I mean, this is all he's, he's known. And I think his mom and dad, I mean, just huge effect on how he saw the world. And look, you can only, you can only control what you can control. Like, you know, you, you have to d- deal with the hand that you were dealt and just kind of keep looking forward, stay calm in the chaos and live the life and treat everybody with respect. And that, that's what he did. I mean, he went to an all-white school. He kicked everybody's butts um, in every possible sport. He goes to Alabama. I mean, shortly after Alabama desegregated, it was not long before that they only let white players play at Alabama. So he gets there. Him and Bear Bryant. I mean, Bear Bryant's like another father to Ozzie Newsome. Uh, unbelievable relationship. He, he did not want to let Bear Bryant down. And when Bear Bryant spoke up once into his final season at Alabama, I mean, that's a conversation that sticks with Ozzie Newsom to this day. You know, fast forward through all the playoff heartbreak with the Cleveland Browns, the chaos he dealt with in all of those games, all of those moments. It, it's you know, your, your listeners here in Minnesota, I'm sure can relate. Ozzie Newsom lived it with the Cleveland Browns. But then, yeah, you're right. The Baltimore Ravens, I don't think – Younger fans like ourselves really understood what it was like for the Cleveland Browns to become the Baltimore Ravens. Art Modell being like the most hated man in the state of Ohio. And then you're just creating a team from scratch in a lot of ways. I mean, they're at this old police barracks. That's their headquarters. They've got VHS tapes lined up along the border of this place. Uh, Phil Savage and talking to him about this had some amazing stories on just how bare bones it was. And Ozzie Newsom was the man entrusted with building this team from scratch. And he was just kind of a, a grunt scout for Bill Belichick with the Cleveland Browns, but Art Modell trusted him. He, he basically, he wasn't officially the GM for a few years, but he was the GM. He was the one that had to make this work and he made it work. And we get into the backstory of the Jonathan Ogden pick, the Ray Lewis pick, right? Art Modell, Ted Marchabroda, they wanted Lawrence Phillips. They wanted the big splash. They wanted to make hay in this new city, this, this new market. And Ozzie Newsom's like, yep, that calm and chaos, just trust what your scouts see. Jonathan Ogden was number one on the board. Yeah, they had an offensive tackle, but Jonathan Ogden, they believe, could play guard for a year, become a tackle. Then all, all they do is, you know, create this machine of a front office that's really the envy of everybody around the NFL. I mean, you talk to people around the league and you ask, all right, who, who does it right? Like what front office is really structured the right way? It's Ozzie Newsome. It's the Baltimore Ravens. It's everything that they built. Folks, those who know me well are aware that I'm not a big drinker, but when my neighbors recently dropped by, they were surprised to see a bunch of tall boy cans laying around. No, I didn't change my life choices. Those cans were liquid death water. In particular, I've become a big fan of the sparkling lime flavor. As you know, I'm a big soda guy, but I'm starting to think that water might be a little better choice for the health side. Speaking of which, it's ironic that it's better for you and it's called liquid death. But liquid death is trying to murder 
Your thirst and plastic bottles. Aluminum is simply better for the environment because a large portion of plastic that you try to recycle just ends up as garbage because it is not profitable to recycle. So Liquid Death puts its money where its mouth is and donates 10% of their profits to killing plastic. So give Liquid Death a try if you're not a drinker but you want to fit in in social situations. Bring a Liquid Death can of water with you. Pick it up at Target, Hy-Vee, Whole Foods, or go to liquiddeath.com insider. That's liquiddeath.com insider and use their store locator. Yeah, and of course, there was a lot of connection for me reading about it with uh, the Vikings and, and Cleveland Browns, the things that he went through, the Red Right 88 with Brian Sype and so forth. Uh, but um, really, the, the team building part of it uh, is is interesting because you're kind of able to in the in the book and what you do so well and you know that I have such great respect for you as a reporter but I just love how you kind of tie in what Ozzie Newsom went through as a kid to how that affected him through his entire life his work ethic on the field how he approached with a lot of humility uh, as a member of the front office which I think that you and I have been around a lot of teams that there's not <laughs> always humility uh, no. and and I and no. I and, and no, but is this not right though? Like, I think that that's, if you're asking me like what makes the difference between somebody who might succeed or last way longer than they should. And someone who's getting fired earlier, it's usually arrogance and humility, uh, arrogance versus yeah. humility. Like the people who understand what they don't know, or the people who empower other people in front offices. Like what I, also what I'm saying here is that in this book, there's a lot of other things that are kind of NFL lessons that go beyond just, Hey, here's a tight end story. And as I was reading the Ozzie Newsom part that really jumped out to me, like, yeah, I can see why this guy succeeded because like you said, he wanted to go to a white school because he felt that it would help him in the long run, even if it would be really difficult. That's a child making that decision, but he sort of understood process even as a kid. That's that's so interesting. It is. It, it blew me away to have that head on your shoulders at such a young age to say, no, I I want to go to the best possible school, get the best possible education, and I'll, I'll put my ability up with anybody because I don't see skin color. I'm just a kid. I just want to play sports. I want to learn in school. That steady, like calming influence. And it, it, it carried through this entire life. I thought you put it perfect on the humility too. I mean, Phil Savage, Kirk Ferentz worked with him for a long, long time. Everybody who's been around Ozzie Newsome again and again, just says, this is one of the best men you'll meet. There's no ego about him. I mean, he is, he is the same person day in and day out. And a lot of people claim to be the same person day out, day in and day out. And they're not, there's sticks up, you know, where they, 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 they think their stuff doesn't stink and they operate it through the lens of just being the head honcho, having a ton of ego. And that's how things go south for a lot of NFL teams where he really does bring everybody in. All the scouts feel a part of the process there with the Baltimore Ravens. And you don't hear that everywhere. And I think that a lot of teams are kind of doomed when they don't just take everybody into consideration. I did a big series on the New York Giants last year. And with Dave Gettleman, it was it was not that. It was not collaborative. It, it got really weird at the end. And Ozzie Newsom, year in and year out for two decades, took on all the opinions. He, he knew that he had that final say. But everybody felt a part of the process I feel like that's what the Minnesota Vikings are really trying to build there. I mean, I'm talking to the head coach, talking to the GM, and it's early. Obviously, it's very early, but it's it sounds like you're talking to Ozzie Newsom and the Baltimore Ravens in so many ways. And I we've seen it really so far, uh, the way that the players have responded to these things. And I know that you know, their, their record is good. So it's very easy to say like, look, it's working. But I think that even in, as a long-term model of having the players feel more involved, having everybody in the front office feel more involved. And I also think that them not coming in and firing all the scouts and hiring their own new guys was kind of a signal as well of like, we want everybody to be uh, more of a part of this uh, because I think a lot of front offices do that and they just bring in their own guys. But if you bring in your own guys, 
are you just getting people who are going to agree with you, right? And just listen to you. So anyway, that's kind of diverging off of the tight end subject. But uh, I think that as I went through this, I kind of learned a lot of things um, about, you know, how football works and what, you know, kind of how players see the game and how different guys are uh, even after their careers. So now if you've been listening to this so far and um, maybe didn't watch Jackie Smith or uh, Ozzie Newsom, we can fast forward a little bit to another one that stuck out to me. <laughs> I just thought this was the best way to tell some of these stories. I, I love it. I love like going I back in time, right? It's great. Yeah. Well, you know that I do. I mean, every every time on NFL films that they play the Super Bowl recaps, starting with the first one, is like Bart Starr ran the bootleg or whatever. It's like yes, but uh, more modernly, uh, Dallas Clark in this uh, is a really amazing story. And some of these I just had no idea. I mean, now I feel like with Twitter, we know everybody's story all the time. Uh, I did not know about uh, Dallas Clark losing his mother, what he went through at Iowa to even become a tight end. And then he becomes the right-hand man to Peyton Manning. And, uh, you know, he's, he's just his entire career. He's just out there with like a weird tight end number running over the middle of the field open is kind of an outlet for Peyton Manning, but he ends up playing such a massive role in the success of those teams. And he was a guy that uh, probably about at the time he started college would have had a 0.001% chance of ever making the NFL. No doubt about it. That might've been my favorite chapter to write And like all 15 chapters are essentially, you know, 15 long form stories ranging from anywhere. I don't know, 6,000 words to 12,000 words and learning about Dallas Clark. It, it did blow my mind where I, I, I had the same thoughts you did. Here's somebody in this pyrotechnic offense you know, that's running at this insane historic pace, number 44 in the slot at tight end, doing some new things schematically, but I, I didn't know anything about him as a person, as a player, anything. And we talked for, gosh, over two, three different conversations, probably four, five, six hours. It, you just can't get enough of Dallas Clark. He's got stories for days, and it all has a similar to Jackie Smith roots in like, – Everything we see on the field schematically and how different this offense was, it's not a coincidence. It starts, like you said, high school senior, getting ready for graduation. Tragically, I think it was the same night as the Seinfeld finale. He can still kind of hear the the Green Day song playing in, in the house. Um, his mother in the garage just passes out and dies in his arms. I mean, he says goodbye to his mother in his arms. And as we get into it, the relationship he had with his dad, was not good. His dad, in many ways, was not a dad. Uh, so his, his mom was was really everything. That, that was his world. And his life really could have gone one of two directions. And he gets into this. It could have gone south. He could have wallowed in self-pity. He, he could have blamed God. He, he remembers thinking that it, things can get very, very dark in that moment. Instead, he walks on to Iowa. And it took a long time at Iowa. But from God, his appendix bursting to, you know, God, I, I'm trying to jog my memory. You probably know better than me. He busts his shoulder. He's wearing weird numbers. Uh, he's playing linebacker. He's a terrible linebacker. He doesn't really know what the hell he's doing out there. And it took Kirk Ferentz, like, looking at this guy. Hey, this is kind of strange. Like, he's got a, all these measurables that are off the charts. You know, everything we do in the weight room is is freaky. Why, why isn't it showing up at linebacker? Like, there, there's some kind of disconnect. Uh, so... Moves him to tight end, and it's perfect. It's a perfect fit. Everything the position demands is everything that Dallas Clark embodied. I mean, this is somebody who, I mean, he's he's selling the school paper. He's going through – he's a test dummy for, you know, students in the psychology department. Any way he could make a penny, a dime to pay his way through school, he was doing it. And he's literally mowing Kinnick Stadium. Um, which is a hilarious story there when he's mowing, he falls asleep at the wheel and like takes out, you know, part of the, the structure on the side uh, that, that, that he was born to play tight end. He was built to play tight end and everything really did take off at Iowa. Bill Polian realized this is somebody that was a, a perfect fit for Peyton Manning, a, a matchup nightmare where if you put him in the slot, nobody can hang with this dude. And it took off. And, and I think that his relationship with Peyton Manning played a big part in it, too. I, I didn't know that they were so close. 
um, chatted with Peyton Manning for the book as well. Uh, they, they really did kind of develop a rapport in practice in the middle of the offseason in a way that was new for that era. And it wasn't like they just went up the route tree, right? They weren't just doing the Coriel one through nine. It was, okay, today we're going to work on a four. Today we're going to work on a seven. And they would just drill it, drill it, drill it until they had it down perfect. Um, and then we saw what we saw in the playoffs when he's making, you know, an iconic catch against the Baltimore Ravens to get his team to the Super Bowl. Folks, I know you've heard me talk about Soda Stick for a long time now, but I'm telling you, you have to start following them on social media for new, fresh gear they are releasing all the time. Of course, they have the classics like the Moss Moon design and the Metrodome shirts and hoodies, but as the local teams go along in their seasons, Soda Stick is constantly putting out new stuff, whether it's the new Horn State gear or the Vicodontis Rex shirts, lots and lots more from all the Minnesota clubs. Go to SodaStick.com com and follow them at soda stick on twitter that is s-o-t-a-s-t-i-c-k.com on twitter and use the code purple insider to get 15 percent off your purchase and, and this one sort of tells you about a lot of times you don't understand what it takes for these guys to get here and we try to chronicle as many of these stories as we can uh when it comes to football but I mean, the the journey that it takes for for a lot of players, most players, most players are not like, oh, everything just went great from here to the NFL. There are some guys, I mean, like Stefan Diggs, you know, they're uh, in Buffalo where you live. I mean, he uh, was a five star recruit in college, but had a serious injury and some other things happen. And he ends up you know, being a fifth round draft pick for the Vikings and had to fight his way through that. So even guys who are five-star recruits, um, you know, in this Dallas Clark story, the amount of things that he went through to even just be in the NFL is truly incredible. And also like NIL forever, by the way, when you read this, just come on, man, like the things that the guy had to do because he didn't have a lot of support. It also sort of says that it takes an entire community or of people to get somebody to the NFL because he talks about yeah. all the people in his life that helped him get there. And, and these are just some of the stories that I really love from this book. So I think um, people should, should look into it, but I wanted to ask you, cause I know that you are, you are on a tour at this moment. So the, um, <laughs> in fact, you're going to go in and do an interview with Drew McGarry, our friend uh, who's been on the show from defector. But I, I want, I just wanted to ask you about like the, the modern tight end because you talked to some modern tight ends as well. Rob Gronkowski uh, recently in the NFL, um, just, just how the position has changed in your mind, because I think it has, and it hasn't that they are lighter and people are looking more for receiving tight ends. But you know, when I was watching the Raiders the other day, Darren Waller gets hurt. So they got their backup tight end in They they, they have this big package with two tight ends. They run a play action and Devonte Adams is screaming down the field and you still saw the big personnel from the other team because they were worried about getting run over with the tight ends. It's like mm-hmm. this always and forever, man, that when tight ends are out there, the other teams like, what do we do with these guys? The Vikings had a legitimate advantage with Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith on the field at the same time. So I think that as a lot of things morph and change in the NFL, the tight end kind of stays the same. And another thing that stays the same is the fact that there's like four good ones. This position is so hard. There's like four dudes who can really play it. And then there's some dudes who can do some of it and a lot of dudes who can do almost none of it. So I I guess I just wonder about the big picture of the tight end position since you wrote a whole book about. (laughs) (laughs) You're absolutely right. I I think that to this day, we can become enamored with the Kyle Pitts of the world. All we want. No no knock on Kyle Pitts. I mean, there, there are some like burly, grizzly, grit and grime tight ends who do love Kyle Pitts and what he could do for the position because, you know, somebody like that could end up raising the pay scale of the tight end because the tight end is so underpaid. Uh, but the best of the best, they block. I mean, George Kittle put it best when, when we chatted. Like he said, I, I love to block, A, because it's fun. It's just fun to drive a dude 10 yards down the field and laugh, <laughs> laugh in his face after you just slam him into the turf. Like, that's football. But schematically, if you have that threat, if the defense knows and the linebacker knows and whoever's across from you on the line of scrimmage knows, man, like <laughs> I might get creamed here in the run game. 
holy heck, is that going to help you as a pass receiver? I mean, you can just kind of run a little pop route, a little pop pass, run something short. All of a sudden, you're behind the defense because they're terrified of you as a blocker, and you're off 50, 60, 70 yards for a touchdown. Um, that threat is always going to be there, let alone the fact that a defensive coordinator, I mean, they're not going to know what you're doing out there if you can actually block and you can actually run a route where, whereas, you know, a, a Kyle Pitts, I'm using his name because he was, you know, drafted so high, but a lot of finesse, thin, agile tight ends, when they're out there, you're not worried about the run going his direction at all. Like, at all. Uh, so I get it. Like, we love to, like, poke fun at Tony Gonzalez and, and Shannon Sharp, and but they did enough blocking to where there was at least a threat. I mean, Terrell Davis had one of the best stretches of running back has ever had those couple seasons because Shannon Sharp bought into what Mike Shanahan was was telling him to do. And we get into that as well. But he he did enough. that The threat was was there. Tony Gonzalez and Jason Dunn working in tandem, you know, they helped Priest Holmes run for whatever it was, 25, 27 touchdowns. Um, today, there's not a lot of guys. You know, it's not as mainstream. But Kittle, even Kelsey to an extent, um, there are tight ends around that can at least keep it alive which in essence keeps football alive right i i think that shannon sharp and rob gronkowski if you're making like a top 25 players of all time considering the degree of difficulty and the impact of their blocking ability combined with what they could do receiving to me those guys are top 25 all-time players because of that and it's always about like did you catch 100 passes every year but the whole impact on the game to have basically an offensive tackle and Rob Gronkowski at his best six offensive linemen. Oh, and a guy who can run down, down the field and catch a hundred passes. I mean, there's just few players like those guys uh, of all time. And maybe even though they're hall of famers don't even get quite the respect they deserve. So that's why I love that you did this. It is a wonderful book. And, uh, and I don't just mean that because we're friends. I mean, last night, so I'll, I'll tell you this, I was done with my own work at about 1220 AM last night and I had not picked up your book yet. And so I was like, you know what? All right, let me, let me take a look through and let me get some things to talk about. And I ended up being up till like three in the morning re- <laughs> reading all the way through it. And that, and that speaks to, well, I'm a night owl, but that also speaks to you and how well you did this. So I, I really uh, appreciate you taking the time, putting Purple Insider on the tour to tell some of the stories from this book, The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football by Tyler Dunn. You can get it wherever you get your books. And uh, I'm happy for you, man. I'm proud of you that you put all this work in. Well running, go long TD, which I know how much work that is. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, congratulations on the book. Hey, no, I cannot thank you enough, Matt. It's it's been great hopping on the show like this, and it, it means so much that you would take you know three hours in the middle of the night to read Blood and Guts. So thank you for that, and, and thank you to all the readers out there for uh, clicking on Amazon, buying the Blood and Guts. However, wherever you get it, I just think this can be a you know a Bible for the football soul and in, in, in us all, right? I, I, it was so much fun to work on. You know what I mean? I just can't wait for people to hear these stories more than anything. I've been sitting on this for, you know, this past year and, you know, it'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. I mean, there's a lot in here that I think people are just going to have a riot reading. So I can't, I just can't wait for, for, for them to kind of be in that joy, that state of joy, just really learning everything they can about these tight ends. So thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Again, the blood and guts, how tight ends save football. And uh, we'll talk again soon, Tyler. Thanks, man. Thank you. Okay, in an attempt to answer as many fans-only questions as I possibly can during the bye week, let's get in a few more here. This comes from at AU underscore M Schmidt. Fans only, when do we become concerned with offensive play calling? After the bye week, he's learning, but lots of questionable calls on second and third in short. Yeah, I think that play calling is such a difficult thing to judge from the outside. I mean, because we don't always know the process or what Kevin O'Connell was thinking. And so we can only go... Well, that doesn't look like that was right. Now, I'll give you an example. The Vikings were backed up, I think, on their second drive against Miami, and they handed off, handed off, and then ran routes that all went down the field on the next play. 
that I think there were three receivers out and then two check down options. And all of the receivers down the field were not even into their routes by the time that Kirk Cousins was pressured. And it didn't really give him any opportunity to just check it down. Now, if you're going to run on the first two downs, you need to run a draw or throw a screen pass and punt the ball away with your God punter and flip the field and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, that's not a wonderful strategy to be that conservative, but you can understand it, right? When the other team's offense isn't all that threatening and you're backed up against your own end zone. Okay. That's totally fine. Just punt it away and play defense, get the ball back, try to flip the field. But instead, you almost got Kirk Cousins sacked for a safety. <laughs> and, and I thought that was entirely on the play call and not at all on the quarterback. And of course, the pass protection as well. But if your pass protection is a little bit spotty and there's some mismatches there on third and long, do you really want to run Justin Jefferson 30 yards down the field? And, and I think throughout the game, they did find ways to get the underneath passes going, get Jefferson the ball quickly and get him rolling. And of course that wheel route was really brilliant, but I think that there are periods of time during games where I've said, I don't know that Kevin O'Connell has quite mastered this yet Uh, in the same way that maybe we saw from Kevin Stefanski that just seemed to push all the right buttons. Or of course, you know, Gary Kubiak, the legend. And I know that both of those guys were adhering to Mike Zimmer's Uh, demand to establish the run. But I I think that both of them were such great play callers in their feel for the game, feel for the situation and so forth. And even though they were trying to adhere to what Zimmer did and and they were running a lot on second down, which we all criticized. um, I think that throughout games, you really saw it the right times to dial up a screen pass, the right times to hit something quick, the right times to go deep. And it seems to me that Kevin O'Connell is still feeling that all out. And he has said that almost every week, like, well, you know, that one was on me or that's something I need to improve or I need to study. But yeah, out of the bye week, there's no real excuses. If this offense can't get going more. And by the way, I looked this up the first six games last year, the Vikings offense was on a per play basis, more successful and scored more points through the first six games than they've scored so far. Uh, That doesn't mean that they can't be better overall than last year's offense, which really petered out at the end of the year. But I do think that you can look at some situations. Philadelphia is one where they entirely forgot about Delvin Cook and running the football in the second half. They treated a 17-point deficit like it was a 47-point deficit. Uh, Overall, I I don't think it's been any kind of disaster, but I do think that uh, there are times where I've scratched my head a little bit and with this offense and with a team that's in a position to go somewhere, we can't be scratching our head too many times after the bye week because, uh, you know, the Vikings have dropped out of some of those easiest schedule graphics at the beginning of the year. Oh, they've got the easiest schedule. Well, I saw PFF tweet out the 10 easiest schedules the rest of the way, and the Vikings were not on the list. Now, these next two games, maybe, but then after that, there are a lot of teams where they're going to have to be sharper, I think, to get similar results. So, yes, I, I mean, I think that after the bye week, we can be a little more harsh about specific play calls and analyzing decisions and things like that, because I think that it's been very fair and very reasonable to say, all right, everybody's adjusting. Everybody's getting comfortable with each other. It's had its moments. It's had its opportunities where maybe cousins didn't find somebody. It's had its situations where maybe the play call wasn't great or even just the schematic, um, you know, design or the game plan wasn't perfect or whatever. And they've still gotten decent results, but the expectation is now better results that everyone is comfortable and Kevin O'Connell is starting to understand better how to manage everything, being the head coach, communicating with players, calling plays, all the things that go into it. There's a reason why a lot of head coaches don't call plays uh, because it's pretty chaotic to try to do that. And I think that's something that we'll be looking at a little bit in the second half of the season, especially if they hit some potholes. I think we might be talking about it unless, of course, their self-scout during the bye week really helps Kevin O'Connell and it's very sharp the rest of the way. I don't think it's been a huge problem. I wouldn't say, oh my gosh, what a disaster. 
it's just that like everything else with this team, there's times where you go, Oh, uh, I think that can be better in the future. Uh, all right. This question from at JTMN skull fans only question for you. What can we point to as the reasons for why the offensive line is showing more success this year? Please pie chart this Kevin O'Connell, Chris Cooper, Ingram, not being as bad as Udo and Dozier experience of the four of the five guys, Derisaw playing on an Island. Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the, the impression that we have is that the right guard situation has been better, but the numbers do not match up with that in pass blocking in run blocking. It seems like it's been totally fine. And I think the other guys were maybe disasters in every area. He also hasn't committed many penalties. So last year, Ole Udo was the leader in penalties in the entire NFL. And so of course that was going to look really bad. Um, at, whereas Ingram has just been regularly beat and I'm pulling this up right now on PFF to give you the numbers on that. Um, but you know, you scroll down and he is 53rd out of 60 guards that have played at least half the snaps, uh, in pass blocking. Now his run blocking is above average, but as far as total pressures allowed number one in the NFL Ed Ingram has allowed more pressures than any other guard in the entire league. So that's not better. And I think that they showed some of their serious weaknesses. Still uh, Garrett Bradbury played very well to start the season. Certainly took a step back against Miami. And again, it's usually matchups, right? Miami overloaded the offensive line. They isolated some of these guys. They rushed five a lot as opposed to four, which made it much easier uh, on the dolphins to get those one-on-one matchups, to use some of the stunts and twists and to isolate Ingram and Bradbury is the guys that they wanted to go after. And they were very successful in doing that. Uh, they, the Vikings have to be concerned about that in the second half of the year. I think if it continues like this with the pass blocking, there has to be some consideration to playing Chris Reed. If Ingram continues to lead the entire NFL in pressures allowed, Chris Reed is an average pass blocker in his career and has played long sections of time to prove that. Uh, and so I think that there, there has to be some thought to it in the second half of the year, if this continues. But of course, like many other things, there's an opportunity to make progress. Why it is better than it was before Christian Derrissaw. Think about last year. They're starting Rashad Hill. They're starting Rashad Hill. And he was going up against what miles Garrett. That's a lot different than starting a guy who's been one of the best left tackles in the NFL. And you know, Riley reef for a long time was pretty good. And, and I respect Riley reef. He was not as good as what Christian Derrissaw is doing. What Derrissaw is doing right now is emerging as one of the best players at his position in the entire league. I think that Ezra Cleveland has had some really good games and some down games. Uh, Maybe the down games have been a little less noticeable than, say, if you had Tom Compton there giving up a pressure on every play to Aaron Donald. Uh, And again, that's where it comes down to is usually it's the matchups that have determined it. But I think that Bradbury had a strong stretch. And Cleveland has had some very good games. O'Neal is just a superstar at this point, And Derisaw looks like a star. Um, but is it is it so much better that it can't be undone by a great defensive line and a very aggressive approach? I think what we saw last week is that it, it still can. Uh, and that it still has its weaknesses. But maybe not quite the disaster where you're talking about moving a developmental tackle into guard and saying like, oh yeah, this will work. Um, so it's not that, but... I think after last week, maybe we took a step back as far as heaping praise on the offensive line. Uh, all right, one more question here. This from at I am super B4. I'm not sure if it's a fans only question or a mini segment during the bye, but I'd love to hear you go through the remaining schedules of the Vikings and Packers and see where we'd end up in the division. Okay, so picking every game is a lot. Uh, that would That's going to take a lot of time, and that should be probably a whole segment but I can do this. You all know the Viking schedule. And if you don't, I'm sure you've got it on your refrigerator or something. And uh, what we know about the Viking schedule is that it's getting more challenging as they, as they go along. 
Going to Buffalo will be a great challenge. Dallas will have Dak Prescott. The Giants are a team worth worrying about. The Jets have a very, very good defense. You want to talk about a team that could attack the interior? Hey, plus it's Robert Sala, the guy who demolished the Vikings in San Francisco as the defensive coordinator a couple of years ago. So there's games to be concerned about. I still think now, after going 5-1, and one, you have to put the Vikings at 11 wins or at least as a pretty you know, fair and conservative estimate that things will get harder, some things will regress, but you should still continue to win, and, you, and maybe you end up at 11, possibly 12. Okay, so let's set the bar at 11, though, right? Now let's go through the Packers and see what they've got, because I don't know their schedule as well. So they go to Washington this week. Let's just do W's and L's. Why not? I'm not busy. Are you busy? Let's go through it. They will beat Washington and Taylor Heineke. Then they go to Buffalo and lose. At Detroit, they can win. Lose to Dallas. Tennessee at home. I'm going to say they win, but I I also think Tennessee's not too bad. At Philadelphia, they lose. They beat Chicago at Soldier Field. Let's go they beat the Rams at Lambeau. Lose to Miami on the road. Beat the Vikings at Lambeau. And then uh, beat Detroit at Lambeau. So they can win... That was seven wins the rest of the way. So they can win seven. I mean, what essentially we come up with here is that they have some hard games, some really hard games at Buffalo, at Philly, against Dallas at home. Los Angeles might have their stuff together by then. And then the Vikings, January 1st. So happy new year to everybody. And even then, even if I picked the ones that they really should win, I came up with 10. So Green Bay is in order to have a still a good season for them, they're going to have to beat some teams that they're not supposed to beat the way that they've looked. And I'm not sure how they're doing that. I don't know that there's a rabbit to pull out of the hat. Rodgers is not the same guy. He's already showing that he's disgruntled. He doesn't have a receiver that he trusts. And he's making it extremely clear that that's the case. Uh, so Green Bay could still make the playoffs with that schedule because there are many winnable games. Uh, you know, two more against Detroit. That helps them a lot. Washington, Chicago. Like there's a lot of winnable games there that I think will get them into the postseason. But the division is there for the Vikings taking. It is right there. So I think that's the conclusion we come away with without uh, doing joint W's and L's. But, you know, I think if you set if you set the number at 11 for the Vikings, I think that gets it done for the division. Very interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. So more fans only uh, podcasts coming on the way through the weekend. So make sure that uh, you're refreshing your app and keeping track and uh, appreciate again, Tyler Dunn for that really fun conversation. And you can always send your fans only questions to the purple insider website, purpleinsider.com, the contact me love that. So many of you have taken advantage of that or tweet me, send me a DM at Matthew collar on Twitter and I will get it there as well and get to as many as I possibly can. Thanks so much.